Sarah. Hi, Alison. So it's been quite a last couple of weeks in terms of foreign policy for France. It certainly has. France making official that it's pulling troops out of Mali. Mm-hmm. And of course, the crisis in Ukraine. Indeed, indeed. And the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is in the midst of it all. As the head of the rotating presidency of the EU, he tried to broker a diplomatic detente, as it were, with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, to keep him from invading Ukraine. As Marie Dumoulin of the European Council of Foreign Relations told us, Macron has had a lot of contact with Putin. Putin has talked to a number of European leaders, among them uh, Emmanuel Macron, with whom he's had regular contacts for the last five years. And after Chancellor Merkel left, Macron is probably one of the European leaders that has the closest relationship to Putin. So he's trying to make use of this relationship. Whether it brings added value and allows for de-escalation remains to be seen. Well, that de-escalation mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have worked, does it? The diplomacy angle uh, broke down. Yeah. And then there's Mali. Uh, French troops have been fighting an Islamist insurgency there since 2013. And last week, Macron announced that troops will withdraw, although that some will remain in the Sahel region. Yeah. And this has been a long time coming. Mali's government is currently in the hands of the military after a coup. And Malians are fed up with the ongoing insurgency. It's killed thousands of civilians. And And they blame France for not having done what it was supposed to do when it first got there. Of course, when France first went in in 2013, they did manage to put down part of the insurgency, Mm -hmm. but then it all went wrong. The issue here now will be what will happen when the French troops withdraw, leaving a kind of vacuum. Yeah, yeah. France does have to hope that this withdrawal will not go the same way as the chaotic US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, that is the fear. Mm. All of this, of course, is happening with the French elections looming in the background, coming up in uh, less than two months less now. Less than two months, yeah, yeah, coming up. Macron is set to hold his first political rally in Marseille next week. Maybe by then he will have officially <laughs> announced he's going to be a candidate for re-election. <laughs> maybe, mm. maybe. The excuse until now for not declaring has been that the president has been taken up with managing these foreign crises. And Macron's opponents were up in arms about that, saying he was exploiting these foreign policy crises to keep himself in the headlines whilst delaying his candidacy. Yeah, and now they are having a field day, painting him as a failure across the board. So, Alison, I want to talk about this concept of l'Islam de France, the Islam of France. So that's the idea that there is a way of practicing the Muslim religion, which is specific to France with its tradition of laïcité, that's broadly translatable as secularism. Exactly, exactly. The French government has inaugurated the first Forum of Islam of France. This brings together thinkers and religious leaders to try to figure out how to structure the religion here. So this comes as France is in the midst of a crisis, isn't it, with its relationship to Islam and its Muslim citizens. All of this on the back of the 2015 terror attacks. And there are ongoing attempts to try and address radicalization among certain pockets of, of France's Muslims. Indeed. And so in Islam, right, imams aren't ordained. They're community leaders. There's no formal training. They're just particularly well-versed in the Quran and its interpretation. 
France, though, would like to see some kind of official recognition of imams in order to be able to require they be trained. Now, the government sees this as a way to, if you like, temper radical mm. tendencies, some of them uh, being coming from outside of France and creating this so-called Islam of France. Yeah, yeah. So today there are three schools in France that train imams. The attendees are voluntary. Our colleague Marie Casadebaig went to visit the Al Ghazali Institute, which is based in the main Paris mosque. It trains imams and mushidat, which is the equivalent for women. On a recent Sunday, Tufik Bouabadala starts the day for his 13 first year students with a course on theology. Today's class is a module on the different legal approaches in Islam. We are looking at the second one from the city of Medina, known as the Maliki School. We are examining the sources of jurisprudence and we are also focusing on the interpretation of the texts. Aussi, on a concentré sur l'interprétation des textes. Sunni Islam has four main schools, different legal practices, which are found in different parts of the Muslim world. Bouabdallah is teaching this class in Arabic. Theology is generally taught in Arabic. Otherwise, it's difficult to understand the source. You can have interpretations of the texts in other languages, but to lay down the basis for understanding the exact texts, you need to use Arabic. In the training program, there are other subjects taught in French, like classes on French institutions or history. Those are in French. Lalou Ben Ghazal, who recently retired from a job as an information manager, explains that he's been working on a sermon about charity in French and in Arabic. Il faut le communiquer en français parce qu'on a des jeunes, des gens qui sont nés ici. There are people who are born here and educated in French, he says. So we need to speak to them in French. We're here to give them information clearly. The students here say that's what they're here to learn, how to pass on information. They've each been practicing their own version of Islam in their own way. Habiba Taouch grew up in Morocco. I grew up with an Islam with my parents that was about tolerance and respecting others. But what we see here is sometimes a bit the opposite of what we aspire to. Le contraire de ce que nous, on aspire. In her work as a professional trainer, she was sometimes faced with young people who were veering into radicalism. She's hoping this training course will help teach her how to help them. She considers herself a laïque Muslim, laïcité, the French idea of secularism, but in this case, her laïcité means she practices her religion, though in private. She doesn't wear a headscarf, for example, which she was worried would keep her from being accepted into the training program. But she was accepted, one of five female first-year students out of 13. She's training to become a murshidat, which is the female equivalent of an imam. She can do everything except lead prayers. She can teach, make presentations, and offer religious guidance. Taush says that she feels like the Course is teaching her the roots of her religion. I'm learning the real Islam, which for me includes human rights. That's the approach. 
If I learn it myself and I have the knowledge, I can transmit it and be legitimate. It strengthens my position to transmit that message, and I'm telling the truth. Transmettre ce message-là, et je suis dans la vérité. But the idea of training imams is controversial, especially that the training is officially recognized by the state, which is what France is leaning towards. But Tufik Bouabadala, the teacher, says that Islam in France has a very specific context, and imams and religious leaders need support, which the training provides. Il y a plein de choses dans chaque religion. Il y a l'histoire, il y a les traditions, il y a... There are many things in every religion. There is history and traditions. And sometimes you don't have the ability to separate what is the actual religion and what is tradition. Imagine someone who doesn't really know the texts, what they say about your relationship with others, for example. It's easy for them to become radicalized and isolated. That's why we provide this training, for imams to be able to distinguish between the source and the historical interpretations. interpretation selon l'histoire. 63-year-old Kelly Mustafa has been working as a volunteer imam for 20 years in a mosque in the Paris suburbs. For him, this course is necessary to help him counter what people are learning outside of mosques. The duty of an imam is to learn things and pass them on. And there may be people in the Muslim community who do not know certain things. There are young Muslims in France who grew up in another country, which is not secular. So to transmit the religion to them, we have to get training, so we can help them understand the idea of Islam in France. Islam always reflects the country you're in. You have to accept living with other communities. So, this podcast is produced by Radio France International, RFI, and our officers are on Rue Camille Desmoulins. Mm -hmm. Sarah, I've often wondered who this guy was. Now <laughs> I finally had a reason to, to, to find out. Camille, right? One of those first names that could be either male or female. So, this one's a guy. Indeed. And he's often referred to as the journalist of the revolution. Hmm. Every revolution needs its journalist. Yeah. <laughs> Desmoulins was a renowned journalist and pamphleteer in the late 18th century, and he was one of the first people in France to defend the notion of freedom of expression. He was born on March the 2nd, 1760, so 261 years ago next week. He didn't live long, though. He was guillotined in 1794 at the tender age of 34. Mm, a career cut short, as it were. Mm. How did he get into the politics of the revolution? It's a bit of an accident, really. He was supposed to follow his father into law, and he was admitted into the bar, but he had a bad stutter, which hampered his skills as a lawyer. But it, he did turn out to be a very good orator, but just not in court. In the build-up to the revolution, Desmoulins was persuaded that the king, Louis the 16th wanted to dissolve the National Assembly. And on July the 12th, 1789, he stood up in the gardens of the Palais Royal in central Paris, wearing a green cap, green being the colour of hope, and he called on Parisians to take up arms against the monarchy. So that was two days before the storming of the Bastille. Yeah, he didn't necessarily set out to launch an attack. He wasn't necessarily in favour of violence. But he certainly gave the rallying cry to Parisians to take up arms. So you mentioned that he was a journalist and a pamphleteer. What did he actually write? 
His first pamphlet, published shortly after the storming of the Bastille, was called La France Libre, Free France. It summed up the main charges against France's crumbling Ancien Régime. He was, in fact, one of the rare people to speak out as early as July 1789 in favour of a republic. He wrote, Ô roi, oui, je vous ai en horreur. Ô kings, yes, I hate you. Uh, he went on, how could we not hate you tigers that you are? Mm, tigers. <laughs> not much journalistic balance in there. No, he did have a very fiery way uh, with words, for sure. In fact, what really mattered to him wasn't chopping off people's heads. It was bringing in democracy. He argued, for example, for the right to vote for all men over 18 and making the executive accountable before the assembly and, of course, respect for freedom of expression. He launched a newspaper, Les Révolutions de France, the Revolutions in in France, in which he attacked policies that were impeding the democratic movement. Mm, so there was tension there between him and the other figures of the revolution. Yeah, Desmoulins had met Robespierre at middle school, in fact, uh. and he was friends with him in the early stages of the revolution, but he was closer to Danton. As Robespierre began to take a much harder line and was prepared to sacrifice lives in the name of the revolution, well, Desmoulins took some distance from him. Mm. In another publication, Le Vieux Cordelier, his fourth and most famous newspaper, Desmoulins denounced political repression and he expressed fears that the Republic was turning into a despotic regime. Now, I'm calling these newspapers, but he was the only writer uh, in them. Uh, they were published in this quite small format, the size of, a, of nowadays what would be a paperback book. Uh, I guess now we would consider his writings as propaganda, not journalism. And they did get him into trouble. Robespierre's fear of traitors had become so great by uh, 1794 that the slightest criticism wasn't allowed. Yeah, reminiscent of the way authoritarian regimes treat journalists, I mean, even today. Yeah, and Desmoulins paid with his life. He was executed, along with his friend Danton, on the 5th of April, 1794. As he was taken in the cart over to the guillotine, he said, Peuple, on te trompe, on tue tes amis. People, you're being fooled, they're killing your friends. What remains of Camille Desmoulins today? Well, a lot of streets are named after him, like mm -hmm. ours. Sure. There was a bronze statue of him in the Palais Royal Gardens, where he'd made that famous call to Parisians to take up arms. In 1942, the occupying Germans decided to melt it down, as they did with, with many statues, in mm. fact. Another one was made a bit later, showing Desmoulins, the orator, on the 12th of July, standing on a chair, ready to harangue the crowds. But it wasn't installed in Paris, but in the town of Guise, where he was born. Oh, why are you moving out of the capital? Probably because he's no longer considered an important mm. enough figure. I mean, he was only a journalist, after <laughs> only all. Only a journalist. Yeah. Just happened to have rallied people to the revolutionary cause, which led to the storming of the Bastille, and which has, well, sort of determined the whole of French history ever since. You'll remember in the early days of Emmanuel Macron's presidency, he pledged to turn France into a startup nation. Sure, he put in a lot of money too, set up a 5 billion euro fund. Yeah, and he set the goal of having 25 so-called unicorns in France by 2025. So unicorns are startups that are valued at more than a billion dollars that haven't gotten public yet. Yeah, and France now has 25 unicorns, <laughs> mm. three years ahead of schedule. 
not as many as Germany or the UK, which are still far ahead. And of course, small fry compared to the US, which has 644 and counting. Hmm. But it does show that France is making good progress because back in 2017, when Macron came to power, well, there were only three. Sure. So Macron must be thrilled with all these unicorns running around. He is. He something to be happy about. <laughs> uh, he took to Twitter a few weeks ago to say that French startups were changing the lives of French people, creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. They're making us sovereign, he hailed. Mm, sovereignty, it's become quite the buzzword in many areas these it, days. It has. It's worth pointing out, though, that sovereignty, well, it isn't altogether true because a lot of the investments in startups, once they get big anyway, uh, around 80% of those investments come from abroad. Ah. But, but hey, it at least shows that foreign investors are willing to bet on France and trust its entrepreneur. So entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, not entrepreneur, E-S-E-S, -E uh, feminized. <laughs> yeah, with the middle dot. Yeah. yeah. That is the downside. There aren't many women among these unicorns. In fact, only one of the companies has a mixed management board. Mm. Clearly, the glass ceiling is alive and well. The major barrier for women is raising capital, the money you need to scale up your company. So... Sisters are doing it for themselves, as they say. In 2018, a couple of women entrepreneurs who'd done rather well set up a collective called, appropriately, Sister, but with an A at the end. The aim is to reduce the gender gap when it comes to getting finance. I talked to one of its members, Marine Vetzel. She's 29. She co-founded a femtech startup called Imanacare. It's an app, in fact, to help women with hormonal imbalance. So an important subject. She isn't quite ready to look for finance herself. But she talked to me about the challenges that women are facing and the progress that they're making through the Sister Collective. We are just starting now to knock on doors, especially to business angels who want to be part of the journey from uh, the very beginning. It's an exciting time to start to look for funding. To raise money in France, do you have to be a man? It's a good question. When you look at the data, if you see like the report by Sista, 90% of the deals from last year were led by only male teams. What are some of the reasons why the finance goes to the male teams rather than the female ones or even the mixed ones? Well, on the side of the investors, you can have cognitive bias in the way they make decisions. You mean that some male investors will just think a woman won't be able to handle such large amounts of money? No, it's not that obvious. But what I mean that I'm thinking about a study, especially, I think it was from a Harvard Business Review that published that a couple of years ago. And they studied the questions that were asked from investors to female founders and to male founders. And what they saw is that the type of question uh, male founders got were more promoting questions, whereas female founders, the entrepreneurs, would get like uh, risk-avert questions. For example, for a male, it would be, uh, how will you be like the number one in the world in your market? And for female founders, it would be, how will you uh, prevent that type of risk? So almost anticipating a problem rather than saying, the sky's the yes. limit, how can you be the next Bill Gates? Mm. So it's unconscious bias. This study showed that type of question could have a, a big impact on the funding uh, the different entrepreneurs could get or not. So and then the women coming forward and saying, I need this money. Yes. What are the problems there? So on the side of the entrepreneurs, what we see is that female entrepreneurs or women in general are uh, less likely to uh, promote themselves, promote the team or to really make the, the numbers shiny, whereas men uh, do it way more than uh, women. 
So I'm just saying there's a difference, which has then an impact on uh, the funding that they get. And well, I personally believe that a societal uh, issue, you know, uh, from education of women from the very young age and that uh, impact then when you are an adult and in your business life. So in view of that, what are some of the initiatives that Sister has undertaken to try and get more gender balance within companies, startups especially? Uh, yeah, startup founders. So on the side of founders, we launched a program dedicated to female founders to help them advocate better for themselves, for their company, and to help them get easier access to VCs or investors in general. We make sure they have uh, the first contact easily and that they can make the best of it. And for the investor side, we uh, launched a charter with uh, 120 funds in Europe. They engaged to measure the gender gap they actually have in their portfolio from the moment they receive a deal to the moment it's signed. So they can really track the evolution, which is the first step. We often say at Sista that you need to count women so that women count. And that starts with this, so you need really to count at first. And then we have workshops specifically for those funds to help them understand the bias that they can have and to help them really be aware of that so that they can uh, correct it potentially. Yeah. Uh, so we launched that uh, two years ago and every year in April we publish um, a barometer with uh, the progress of the gender gap in funding in startups. And so last year we saw that uh, the gap was reducing Even if it's, there is still a lot of work to do, in the fund that signed this charter, they measured actually the different uh, gender gap. And also there were more uh, female-founded startups that got funded from those funds than uh, the year before. So we're here at Station F, which is like a, a startup incubator here mm -hmm. in Paris. It's a really buzzy place. How much encouragement is given to startups in France? For female-led startups in France, you have a lot of initiatives uh, that are launched. If you're talking about Station F, to take that example, they launch a, a program dedicated uh, to uh, female leaders on campus. And uh, every year they select profiles from the campus I was inspiring a female entrepreneur to both inspire other women or girls maybe to become an entrepreneur one day and to be also reference on the campus for other women who, who need some help from them. And also on the side of Sista, every year we publish a, a list of women to follow that will be shaping the tech of tomorrow. So it's not specific to startups, it can have uh, investors or ecosystem actor in that list, but it's a way to put the light on certain profiles that you don't necessarily uh, see in all the media. And uh, the role model is really important, I believe, because you can project yourself as a little girl when you are a child, you know, it's easier to project yourself in a woman when you are a girl than uh, in a man. I remember Emmanuel Macron announcing you know, a big fund for startups, I think in 2019, several uh, billion euros. You know, have you felt that funding coming in? Well, that fund was especially for late stage startups, well, scale-ups. So, so that's not where you're at yet. Not, I'm not there yet, someday, I hope. So it's a great thing that the government can have more institutions engaged to fund startups. Once you get to a certain level, yes. you need big money. But the thing is that in France, we are very strong in early stage companies in early stage funding you have a lot of help to create a company it's really easy but when the company uh, scales up at a certain level the funds available in France are sometimes a bit limited and so the companies go either elsewhere in Europe but mostly in the US where you have more funding so that's why politically the government uh, wanted to keep the French tech giant 
as French. And that's why Macron implemented that fund to have more French institutions fund the scale-up yeah. so that they can remain French, you know, and have more French tech leaders. And that's it for the show. This episode was mixed by Nicolas Doro. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. If you like what you hear, look for Spotlight on France on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. It really does help others to find us. You can also find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. And you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, March 10th. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye-bye, Sarah.